Now, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, uh, I thought I would just like to speak to you about a subject that is avoided uh, very much, I think, and the rains came. Uh, I want to speak of death, because death is a subject which is avoided so much, and yet uh, I want to speak of the death of man and the death of Christ, and what Christ's death did in the defeating of death. For after all, this was the purpose of Christ's coming, remember. It was to defeat death. Remember that death came by sin. So his defeat would be of sin and of death. And it tells us that Jesus Christ came that he might destroy the works of Satan. And death came remember, into this world through Satan's deceiving of Eve when he told them, Adam and Eve, that they could be like gods if they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said to them, even though God had said, the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die, and he merely said to them, you shall not surely die. In other words, God wouldn't let that happen to you. Isn't this what we hear in the world today? It's too kind. If we were to listen to most people, they would make God some sniveling judge who sits on a bench and has no justice and is kind to everybody. And we hear that word love used in such a manner as though God loves without any thought of judgment. But I want to tell you that that is not so. God loves all mankind. God loves the world. But he sent Christ to redeem mankind. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be condemned. But whosoever believeth not, he is condemned already. And the wrath of God abideth on him. So death is a judgment of God. God, in his kindness to man, put a judgment of death upon us. Once sin had come into the world to let man live in a sinful body eternally. Well, I don't have to tell you how bad that will be or could have been. Can you imagine? Look at yourself. How long do you think you would want to go on and go through the experiences you have already gone through? If I were to ask you, there's hardly a life here, I imagine, that couldn't say to me, I never want to go through that experience again. Because there are experiences of life that we never want repeated. Life is a troublesome journey, God says. The Old Testament tells us, as the sparks fly upward, so is man filled with troubles. And so I, I get a little upset with these people who have a flippant attitude to Jesus Christ and to salvation, as though it's a bed of roses, as though when you came and found the Savior as your very own, from there on in, it was going to be one great glory road. 
Well, young people and older, I want to tell you the Christ life is a life of warfare. It's a life of warfare with your own heart, a life of warfare with Satan, a life of warfare with a world that would lure you away from Jesus Christ. And so the judgment of God was death upon man. There's a portion of Scripture that I'd like to read in relationship to that, and it's found over in 2 Corinthians, if you would turn there with me. 2 Corinthians. And it's, we could begin at the uh, 16th verse of chapter 4. And I'll go to the 10th verse of chapter 5. And here Paul has just been reciting to the people the great trials he's gone through, the beatings, the persecutions, the burdens. When I think of what Paul went through and I look at ourselves and I say, God forgive us for our complainings. Every little thing, when we think of the little things that can disturb us. Water comes in the basement, your heart's broken. The car didn't run right. A lot of little insignificant things, you know, that can trouble you so, and you're so frustrated and anxious and filled with anxieties. And then I think of the, the apostles, and I think of Paul. And I read the record in that for a fourth chapter there, and I won't go through the whole thing. But uh, as he describes the problems, he says here, uh, we're troubled on every side in the eighth verse of the fourth chapter, yet we're not distressed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Is that the way with you? Oh, sure, you get a little perplexed, but do you despair right away? Always, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And then thinking of how he's described his own, he's thinking of his, the, the, the trials and the burdens he has and the, the great needs that he's had. And Christ has answered those needs. Even though he has been perplexed, it hasn't gotten him down. This is the big thing. This is a perplexing world we're living in, beloved. No one has the answers. Only Christ. Remember this. No one has the answers. President Nixon doesn't have the answer. I hate to tell you. I know it's distressing. And it's not a matter of admiration for the man or lack of it. All I'm saying is he doesn't have the answers. He doesn't have the answers to the financial problems of a world that's collapsing. I would remind you that Jesus says, in the last days, great perplexities shall take the nations. 
and fearful and fear shall enter men's hearts for the things they see coming upon the earth. So that we're to understand that all of these things that we see, the financial problems, the burdens, doesn't it strike you as I look at this world around me? And I love the country I live in so much. I love this United States. But it strikes me as almost childish when you take one plan in the financial chaos and you say, this is it, we're going to win through this, and in the middle of it, you stop it and say, we're going to take the other plan, which is exactly tangent to what he was doing before, and we'll see if we can't win with this one. What is this? This is perplexity, right? This is perplexity. We do not know the answers. You know, it's hard for me not to continue on some of these themes, but as I look back in the history of this nation, and I remember what caused us to rebel against England, do you know that the nation itself is practically in the same type siege now where taxation becomes confiscation? That's why we warred with England. Their taxes were confiscating everything. And we can see as we look around the nation now, do you think taxes are going to go down? Listen, it may look upon the face of it like they're going to go down, but I can assure you that somewhere along the line, there'll be other taxes will be brought into the picture to make up that little tax gap that you think you're getting. What I'm saying is the world is filled with perplexities at this present time. And Paul's world was filled with perplexities when Paul was here. It's nothing new. Jesus says, in this world ye shall have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, if Christ is dwelling within you, you can be an overcomer for Jesus Christ. What does John say? Who is he that overcometh? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ. You can have that overcoming Holy Spirit within your breast that despite the trials, the tribulations, and yea, even death itself will give you a deep and holy joy within that nothing can touch. Nothing! And that's what Christ wants for you and for me. Now, after Paul has spoken about these things, he's distressed. He looks around the Roman world. He looks all around him. His death is coming. In a short time, he's going to say, I'm ready to be offered. I wonder what we would have done if, if we had been in Paul's place. You know, I can't help but think that these men, do you realize that Paul and John and the others lived far beyond a normal age? 2,000 years ago, men died at 30 to 35. That was their death rate. Did you know that? A man lived to be 35 to 40 was considered he's, he'd lived a long time. Half the babies died in childbirth. Half the mothers died in childbirth. Paul died at 76. This was rare for a man to live to be 76, and John was 96. 
God's preserving hand was upon them. He had a great job for them to do. But when I think of these men and how they suffered death and how they looked forward and said, I am now ready to be offered. Henceforth there's laid up for me, Paul says, a crown of righteousness which the Lord shall give me in that day. And then they take Paul they tie him to the back of a horse, as tradition tells us. They dragged him down the Appian Way for two miles with his face in the dirt, and they put his head upon a block and beheaded him. And I can just imagine Paul translated into the presence of Jesus Christ. And as his spirit is wafted heavenward and leaving that body which couldn't contain that immortal spirit, his spirit is wafted heavenward looking back and seeing his head there and saying, they think they got me. Isn't that glorious? They think they got me. I can imagine James. The Jews call upon him and call upon him to deny the living Christ, to deny that Jesus is Messiah. Remember, all of the apostles are Jews. To deny that he is the Messiah. And James refuses to deny it. And so they take him up to the parapet of the temple and before all the Jewish people he refuses to deny it, and his body is sawn in half and cast to the street. And I can imagine James looking backward as his spirit is wafted heavenward, say, they think they got me. <laughs> we haven't faced anything, have we, huh? You know, I really think our Christianity will begin to shine when persecution comes and not before it. I hate to say it. The church has never been its vibrant fullest until persecution has set in upon the church. It is only when it is hated, where the gospel is despised, that the church really is vibrant and the children of God gather together to pray with great power and great fervency in the Holy Spirit. Listen, what do we know about meetings for prayer? What do we know about preaching of the Word of God? When I hear the men who come back from Russia, when I hear the men who come back from Vietnam and tell us of prayer services that last five hours and six hours and where they have preaching services which last three and four hours where three and four men get up and preach and the people have to stand to listen. And then I look at our country with all of its ease, with all of its comforts, with all that we have, and you can hardly drag people out on a Wednesday night from watching television to come and to pray that Jesus may pour out his Spirit upon us in these last days. The devil has so deluded the church of Jesus Christ that they are believing a lie. And they're not conscious that the Lord Jesus is coming soon. And beloved, whether it be by death or by life, we should be praising God. Let me read the portion now in 
this chapter, beginning at the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians and beginning at the 16th verse. Now, Paul has just talked about himself. He says, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Would you notice the distinguishing mark? There are two men in you. There is an outward man and there is an inward man. God distinguishes this very carefully, you see. The outward man is just the house. It's not the real you. You cannot know anybody by looking at them. Oh, the eyes may have a certain expression in them. There may be something about them that may you feel tell you something, but I can assure you that you cannot know another soul. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I know I'm glad. You must be glad. I'm glad only God knows me. Aren't you glad God only knows you? Wouldn't it be a dreadful thing if every wife and husband knew about every wife and husband completely, what they've thought, what they've done, what they've been like through a lifetime, they couldn't live together for one day hardly because the other could not stand knowing the thoughts of the other individual. The inward man. The inward man that no one knows but God. God looks not on what? The outward things but upon the heart. And so Paul here is describing the two men. He says, here's the inward man. He said, he is renewed day by day. He said, here is the outward man. He perishes. So he said, there is a tremendous thing that can happen in your life if Christ comes in. He said, it can't happen unless Jesus comes in. And he said, this amazing thing is that while the outward man from the cradle to the grave is decaying and perishing, the inward man at the same time can be flourishing upward through the Holy Spirit of God and being renewed day by day. See? He says, isn't it wonderful? There's two men. There's not just one man. Wouldn't it be tragic if that which happened to us outwardly was everything. All life would be so terrible to even conceive of. But to know there is this inner man, that which God looks upon, the spirit of a man. Man is body, soul, and spirit, and that spirit within him. That the outward body is going to die. It's going to be laid aside. It's going to return to the dust. We can't keep it unless the Lord Jesus returns. It's bound to go. Nothing you can do about it. Try as you may. Treat it as well as you can. Feed it as good as you can. Comb your hair as nice as you like. Make yourself look as beautiful as you can. You can't stop death. For it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so death has passed upon all men because of one man, and that man was Adam. 
for in Adam all die. But in Christ, all can be made alive. And so here he tells us there are two men. He says there's the inner man. Don't faint, he says. For the outward man will perish. But the inner man is renewed day by day. Beloved, are you renewed day by day? If you're not, let me tell you why. All right? Let me tell you why you are not renewed day by day. You cannot be renewed day by day. You must admit the old man is perishing. The body is going. Even as young as a baby may be, doctors will say from the cradle to the grave, the body is giving up. Calvin said, well, he said, all men die, but God in his great grace has given a mighty compensation to those who are saved. And that compensation is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the difference. There is the joy of knowing that while that old man is dying, death is coming. And beloved, this is a problem today. Doctors don't know how to handle people concerning the fact that they are trying to avoid thinking about death. Let me read to you, if I might, something that I cut out from the paper, written by a man who I've admired, though he's a Roman. I have had great admiration for Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. His writings are excellent. He's the one man, if I might say, that is the closest to Protestant theologians. Dr. Barnhouse, I remember in his days, had spoken to Sheehan, and after he spoke to him, he had said, of all the Catholic theologians, this man is the closest to the Protestant position of any man that I have ever met. I remember Monsignor Sheehan saying this, if any of you Roman Catholics believe that because you've been baptized and because you've had your first Holy Communion, and because you've been confirmed, you're going to the kingdom of heaven. You've made a sad mistake. Until you come to the knowledge of Christ as your Savior yourself, you are lost. Now, that's the kind of statement I like to hear. Now, here's what this man had to say about death in the paper. He said, To a carnal and erotic age like our own, it is hard to label anything obscene. But this is only in the area of sex, he says. There is, however, almost universal agreement that one subject is obscene. It must never be mentioned to children. When it happens, every possible disguise is used to cover it up. In its presence, everyone feels awkward. A victim of the new obscenity is hurried out of the house as quickly as possible as if he had leprosy. Preachers and speakers are invoked to soften its baseness and every artifice of the cosmetic industry is used to disguise it. The new forbidden subject and the revolting obscenity of men is death. 
Is there a relationship between eroticism and the new obscenity? Modern man fears death as he fears nothing else. He knows it means the end of his existence. And he has found no meaning in life. And yet he fears a judgment of his actions. And he doesn't know why. The threat of extinction so disturbs him that he turns to sex in order that the intensity of the pleasure may make up for the absence of a goal, which is heaven. That's a statement, isn't it? The medical ex profession expresses alarm at the preoccupa preoccupation with death's denial by men and the fact that people today are too concerned with vitality, looking beautiful, culture, obtaining possessions, pearls, all of the jewelry and the little things of life, and sex, which gives the illusion of perpetual youth and blinds the mind and the heart to death. I don't know whether you saw the program this week, did you, on the television on death? Some of you did. I see you shaking your head, yes. Did you listen to some of the statements people had to make about death? One girl I felt sorry for. Her father was 42 when he died, so she's had his body frozen. Cyrogenics, cryogenics. It cost her $8,500 to have his body frozen. It cost her $1,000 a year to maintain it frozen. They asked her why she had done it. She said, for peace of mind. Now, beloved, if I know what the Word of God it says, it tells us that when we're saved, we receive what? Peace of mind, peace of heart. When I listened to some of the older people on that program, when they spoke about death, they weren't looking forward to it, and everybody was trying to cover up the fact that these people were going to die. They were, had a disease which was fatal and which there was no cure, and somehow they were trying to blind them from the facts of death. I have often wondered if we're right about some things. We go in to see someone who's dying, The family says, whatever you do, don't disturb them about religion. It might upset them. I wonder if we're right. Do you know that's what we get in the hospital, in the chaplaincy? Don't upset the patients. Don't upset the patients. I can remember Steve and myself, I was chaplain of Hempstead General Hospital, Steve was chaplain of Franklin General Hospital. And I can remember going in to visit people who were dying and speaking to them about eternity, lovingly so, not describing the terrors of hell, but the glories of Christ, the glories of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And I can remember well that Steve's heart was broken several times 
as we would get a call to the church here from the superintendent of the hospital saying that somebody had been upset by the fact that Steve had mentioned to them that eternal life could only be found in Jesus Christ. And they would appreciate it if we wouldn't do that. I can remember men over in the Hempstead General Hospital who cursed me for visiting their bed and told me, get out of the room. I don't want to hear anything about Jesus Christ. Men who claim to be Protestants, some who claim to be Baptists, and who are on the verge of dying. This body which is slowly decaying and come to them to present them Christ and to have them cry out, I don't want any part of it. No part. I've seen people die, beloved, who hate God and want nothing to do with him. I've seen people who, when they are dying, have the most bizarre requests. Have a woman come to... When I, I've been called in at all kinds of funerals, have a woman say to me, who's 86 years of age, when I die, I want to be dyed in the party dress I wore when I was 16. And I buried her in the party dress she wore when she was 16. I have people say to me, let a rock bland band play on my grave. I say, sorry, I don't have anything to do with that. Scatter my ashes over my house. Let the mourners dance on my grave. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't bury just Christians. I'm called upon to bury non-Christians. And I get a chance to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ when I do. All this is supposed to show a brave front, isn't it, huh? Brave front about death. I die a brave soul. But, beloved, you may die a brave soul, but let me say this. One moment after death, you face the judgment seat. Then what? All right? Then what? You face the Savior. Then what? When you face him. And it is not a matter of absent from the body and present with the Lord, but it's a matter of separation from God for all eternity. That is God's judgment and the second death comes finally at the very end when all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life according to Revelation are cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and Satan are. I can't think of anything worse than falling into the hands of the living God. Sins unforgiven. No more invitations to be saved. All opportunities have passed. No second chance. It's all gone. Hell-faced. And suddenly, in that last breath, to know that eternity is faced without God and without Christ. In the psalm, in 146, it says this, As long as I have any being, I will praise the Lord. Do you know how long a Christian has been? The doctor says 
that they judge a person still has being by brain impulses, not by the heart. But the Christian has being until what? The Holy Spirit leaves the body. And then he no longer has being. He's absent from the body and present with the Lord. So, beloved, Paul is telling us that we can be renewed in this inner man day by day. How can I be renewed? You can only be renewed, beloved, as you feed upon the word of God and as you pray every single day. And I warn you time and time again, this is the great flaw, the great fault of the church today. I believe revival would sweep through this area of Long Island if the people of God only at Franklin Avenue were on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ and every single day were burdened to tears in their prayer life for souls that they might be saved and who fed upon the word of God regularly, feeding, feeding, feeding. Let me tell you, the more you feed upon the word of God, the more loving and tender and compassionate your heart becomes to those of your brethren and to the lost in the world. And if you're not doing that, you, beloved, are failing your Savior and you are merely a facsimile of what a Christian should be. It's impossible. Now, Paul makes it clear. He says, now, you know your body is decaying. He doesn't have to tell me that. I know that. He shouldn't have to tell you that. You should know that. In the fifth chapter, he says, in this we groan. In this we groan. Second verse, in this we groan. He's talking to Christians earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Oh, isn't that great? Hmm? In this we groan. How shall I ever record the multiplicity of the groanings, huh? As I close, let me just give you some groanings. Huh? The Christians, here we are. The gnawing aches and pains of growing old. Some of you know that. The love of the young when that love grows cold and leaves an emptiness as nothing else can. Oh, that's a groaning time. Didn't you go through it? The unrequited love of any age where you long to be loved and no one seems to love you and even a wife or a husband hasn't told you for years. The sorrows of a betrayed friendship. The grief of a mother over her dead child. The separation death brings between life partners. The sin that so easily besets you and me. Groaning, groaning, groaning. Romans 8 says the whole world groans. And then Paul says, and even we ourselves groan, who have received the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Groaning. I groan just that I'm in the world. Don't you? 
Just that I'm here, I'm a stranger, I'm a pilgrim. I'm looking to that body which he's going to give me, that Paul speaks of in this week grown, waiting for that house which is from heaven. The blight of inherited traits of character that are a heartache of soul and mind to you and to others who have to live with you. The end result of fathers and mothers and grandfathers, all sinners, and you're the end product. We're all the end products right now, right? Your children, if you have some, they're the end products. But we are the end products of generations of sin upon sin upon sin. Lord knows what our ancestors were. But we're the end product. All those traits of character, the sorrows of the mind, the anxieties of life, the job we loathe and we can't leave. Groan the marriage that's merely tolerated, the wars and the rumors of wars, the dead on battlefields, the starvation of little children, the worldwide perplexities, the inequities of life, the inequalities of life, and the lack of love and understanding. God knows we're groaning. And that if your heart is like my heart, I cry out every day, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And if you're not groaning, I don't think you'd be alive. Can I say that? I don't think you could be alive and not groan. Otherwise, you're completely insensitive to a world that is dying and to souls that are lost. You could at least groan for your relatives and your loved ones who know not Christ and burn in your desire that they may be saved. Well, there's a lot more I'd like to say, but... Oh, to get that in our hearts. Are you looking for Jesus? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And may I say to the young, I know you'll not understand it perfectly, but I can assure you of something. If Jesus comes today, you'll be missing a lot of things. You'll be glad you missed. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy blessed word. And now, as we come to this thy table, we pray that you'd bless us. Lord, we are a groaning people. That's what Paul says. Paul says that we groan together. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption, that perfect redemption of God when we shall see Jesus face to face. We see now through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now, Lord, we come to the table which speaks of the death of Christ for us. Your death, Lord, was that which paid the penalty so that we would never have to suffer the second death that we would never be cast into the lake of fire, 
the lake of judgment, the lake of separation from God for all eternity. And Lord, as we come to thee now, we come with thankful hearts. And we remember the words of the psalmist when he said, as long as I live, I will praise the Lord. Yea, as long as I have any being, I will praise him. God help us to grasp those words and really begin to praise him. And while we're groaning for the coming of Christ, to live in the expectancy of it to the fullest as a witness unto his saving grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.